one of my memories from the, about the age of 12 is of trying one more time to put my foot down that it was Sunday all right but I didn't believe in this stuff and I didn't want to go to church and my father grabbed me by the hair and hauled me into the car. Hello and welcome to Confessions. My name's Giles Fraser and this is the podcast where I talk to interesting and well-known people and try and drill down into their core beliefs and what they're about and where they come from and all that sort of stuff. And today uh, with me is the novelist Lionel Shriver. Uh, pleasure to have you here. Oh, it's nice to be here. <laughs> um, what we generally do in these conversations is we start, if that's all right, by talking a little bit about your family background and where you come from and where you were brought up and then let things grow a bit out of there. Okay. So are you happy to do that? Say something about, about where you, you're from North Carolina. Yes. Um, I didn't pick North Carolina. <laughs> I'm not sure I would have picked North Carolina. Um, it picked you. I had an ambivalent relationship to being from the American South uh, from a fairly early age. I think uh, this was before being from the South was hip. It was hickey instead. And uh, I had a sense that I would leave that part of the country, and, and indeed I did. North Carolina's never been a a fashionable part of the South, even, really, I guess. No, but right? the funny thing is that I have gone back there as an adult, uh, sometimes on book tours, and it's a much nicer place than I realized when I was growing up there. Right. I was far luckier than I had any idea. Right. Uh, the weather is great. Uh, you've got the mountains on one side of the state and the coast on the other. It's got one of the most beautiful coastlines in the world, the Outer Banks. Uh and the research triangle where my family lived, uh, we were in Raleigh, but it's uh, really part of a kind of giant, you know, city made of Chapel Hill and Durham as well. And so university. It's a uni it's a yeah. university hub. It's a research hub. It's got a lot of medical research and scientific research. Uh, it's actually a very sophisticated part of the country, ironically, considering I thought it was a, an embarrassment. And it's drawn a lot of northerners, so it's quite cosmopolitan. It's had an influx of Hispanics in recent years. It's it's a very interesting and charming part of the country. So, you know, if I seemed insulting at the beginning, I take it back, North Carolina. <laughs> I'm sorry. And and, and uh, obviously, I have a professional interest in this because I have children, and I'm a clergyman, and uh -huh. you're the you're the child of a clergyman. Yes, and. That's sometimes touted out to smear me, if you don't take that wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but ki but clergy kids are always a particular well, sort of thing. Actually, uh, uh, <clears throat> the PK, as I'm sure you're familiar with, the preacher's kid, is infamous uh, for being, you know, a hellraiser, uh, someone who doesn't obey the rules, probably takes a lot of drugs, alcohol, you know, is unruly and poorly behaved in every respect because you're rebelling against uh, your father, probably your father. Yeah. And uh, I didn't quite fit that mold, but I was certainly in the rebellious camp. Did, were, you, were you like, you know, pre-will, uh, pre-your-own-will, as it were, asserting your own will? Were you sort of dragged to church and made to do all that sort of yeah, stuff? Yeah, I was and literally, and literally so. dragged to church. Oh, literally? Yeah, one of, one of my memories from the, about the age of 12 is of trying one more time to put my foot down that it was Sunday all right, but I didn't believe in this stuff and I didn't want to go to church. And my father grabbed me by the hair and hauled me into the car. Oh, my word. And one of the things that made an impression about that scene is that when I, you know, pressed him about why I still had to go if I didn't buy into the creed, uh, he said in, in, in a moment of unguardedness, unguard because it would look bad for me, you know. Okay. Right? And that is the truth. That's That was the that was the reason I had to go because he he had to have his children with him. You see, I did. For, I did for appearances. I did almost the done the almost the opposite of what your father did, which is like I was so anxious about not forcing him to do it huh. that I almost. I mean, they, they're absolutely hopeless at RE when you get into school because like, I'm like, no, you don't have to come. You really, really don't have to come. And Jesus, who? <laughs> 
<laughs> so there is a bit of that. I'm always sort of like going, oh, am I such a bad father that I didn't even, you know, sort of well, I think find you that still, middle road. Well, I think you still made the, the right decision. I mean, that was the better direction to go. I, <clears throat> I, You know, finally enough, I am grateful to know a little bit about uh, Christian theology. You will find uh, allusions to biblical bits and pieces in my books. It's funny. I had this... Um, I had this sobering realization uh, when I showed my uh, husband my most recent book. It's not out yet. And the uh, one chapter leaves off on the word Gethsemane. Mm. Now, look, I grew up with the whole, uh, you know, crucifixion, resurrection thing. So I was astonished. My husband had no idea what that was. You're kidding me. I was astonished. But he has not been educated in Christianity. And I, I think there may be a whole generation yeah, of yeah. secular kids coming up who wouldn't recognize Gethsemane either. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Much yeah. less be able to pronounce it. Was, 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 was your father a, a sort of fundamentalist, conservative type no, of... No, that's, that's often misunderstood. Uh, he was a... A, a liberal, not quite, not quite liberation theology type, oh, but close enough. You know, he's a liberal Democrat. Uh, was against the Vietnam War. We recycled before most families, <laughs> right? Um, and big on you know solving world hunger and and you know he he was a, ecumenical in his outlook. So uh, while he was uh, technically a Presbyterian, he went on to become president of. Uh, Union Theological Seminary in New York, which, Famous, yeah. which is a roughly Protestant seminary, but is um, m actually an ecumenical institution. You know, w there, I said this, this part of my background is often um, dragged out to smear me. Um, there was a recent uh, New York Review of Books essay. It was a long one um, last summer. Uh, about it was a, strictly speaking about my most recent work, but it was really kind of a retrospective on what I'd written, and uh, it was one of those withholding pieces. It wasn't exactly outright critical, but it was somehow a little—I don't know how to express it—a little resentful or okay. refusing to give me very much credit. A little sniffy. It was okay. sniffy. Sniffing. Okay. Okay. So there was always not quite being nice. She she had some begrudging admiration for the work, but it was definitely begrudging. So it was a weird piece of work. I wasn't quite sure whether to be happy about it or not. But near the end, she she characterized me as the daughter of a Presbyterian minister. Now my father is a subscriber to the New York Review of Books, and he found the essay before I did. I didn't know anything about it. So I got this weird email from him, absolutely outraged, and, you know, talking about, is, is, is this what I think of him, and is this the way I talk to my friends? He, he was under the impression that the only way it would have been in the New York Review of Books is if the journalist was a friend of mine, and anybody reading it would know that that was no friend of mine. Um, but he was incensed. I didn't even know what he was talking about. But it, once we rolled back the tape and I got him to, to calm down, it turned out that he had been, you know, he had found this paragraph where he was summarized as just some Presbyterian minister. And uh, I, it was clear that the journalist had access to a couple of pieces where it was, she knew, she would have known exactly who my father was. Okay. And the fact that he was president of. UTS for 16 years. Um, the reason she characterized him as a Presbyterian minister was to make me sound like a drag. I see. Right? Is that the sneer thing? So the, That's the sneer the, thing. The sneer thing comes in is that if you're the child of a Presbyterian mm -hmm. minister, then, then you're somehow a certain sort of thing. You're, uh... Yeah, it, makes, it, it, it creates an image <clears throat> of somebody who is dowdy, prim, prissy, uptight, boring... Um, and uh, moralistic. Right, right, moralistic. Right, moralistic. most of all, moral, moral, the, moralistic. The worst thing you can be these days, of course, is to be moralistic. <laughs> well, we're surrounded by moralism, but they don't call it that. Um, in fact, 
uh, one of the emotions I have the strongest negative reaction to is self-righteousness. Now, I might be somewhat genetically prone to it myself, but it's not my, let's put it this way, it's not my best side. (laughs) And that's your dad. How about your mum? Say something about your mum and the rest of your family. My mother, uh, I'm going to use the present tense, but my mother is not at her best. Okay. Is not at her best now? Now. Okay. Um, She had a serious stroke about three and a half years ago and is not herself. Um, But to let's talk to her her best self. Yes. Um, Very smart. uh, Valedictorian of both her high school and college classes. But born into the generation of uh, women who were still expected to get married and raise a family and uh, was not, um, not expected to have a career. So she did a lot of volunteer work, uh, and then when was I was... Was she the vicar's wife, as it were? Was she the sort of, like... Well, my father very soon left uh, being a full-time minister and, and, and went into um, religious, religious education. I see, yes, it's different okay, So he taught at NC State in the religion department and then at uh, Emory University's Divinity School in Atlanta. Atlanta. Uh, Fabulous city. I love Atlanta. So... My mother was, uh, shortly after we moved to Atlanta, offered a job, a full-time job, uh, with the Presbyterian Church, um, which initially, I never did get the backstory on this, but it initially paid more than my father made at Emory. <laughs> Politically, very interesting. She, he was absolutely furious. I was he? Because, you know, he had a PhD from Harvard and a master's from Yale, and who was she? And it, it, I, I wish I could have heard everything that went on behind closed doors, but some of it did leak out. And he just, he was indignant. And my mother's a diplomat. It, it, I would have ended up, you know, getting into a raging rouse with a husband who, who was outraged that, that I was finally being recognized for the intelligent, capable person I had always been. And who was he in return to say I couldn't be paid more than he. But uh, I swear I've sometimes suspected that my mother went to the church, back to the church and asked them to lower the salary. <gasps> right. You know, nobody's ever admitted it. But for some reason, it was no longer an issue. Either that or my father got a raise. But what, what did not happen is that my, my mother got paid more than my father and he calmed down. You're, you're, you're quite down on your dad. I'm hard on him. Um, and in that respect in particular. Now, look, he, he grew up a lot politically in relation to the w- women's movement from that point. That was his nadir. And so I don't want that to be a representation of the kind of person he became. Uh, but... I did grow up in a very patriarchal family. We used that word all the time, and I hate it. But it, it it was at least, you know, it's at least appropriate for the description of my earlier upbringing. So there was a gap in your dad between a sort of progressive face yes. and uh, yeah, which and is the interesting because yeah. he was, you know, very heavily involved in the, the civil rights movement. He marched with Martin Luther King at Selma, which is. Another little irony that now, um, you know, his daughter on Twitter repeatedly gets called a racist. Um, I, I hope he's not listening. <laughs> <laughs> Turn off. <laughs> Go and do something else. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, look, people people are politically inconsistent. Uh, that was that was an emotional matter for him. Uh, and I, I he. He grew up in the same era that my mother did, so he would have been taught to expect to be head of the family, and then everything changed. It's, it seems to me characteristically, Lionel Schreiber, what, what I, the, the small amount that I know about you is that uh, these areas where other people would be afraid to go and areas where they're quite emotionally quite challenging, you sort of go straight for. Well, but that's the part of life that's interesting. It is. It is. I mean, the You're rest of it's just, just not worth <laughs> talking about, you know. We don't have that much time on this earth. But that sort of 
bravery of, of going into areas that are emotionally quite complicated. I, I don't know how you... How do you sustain yourself in doing that? I can see why you'd want to mine that for the interesting stuff. But um, it, it must be hard emotionally to sustain that sort of level of honesty and self-critical honesty as well. Well, honesty has many layers. I mean, you're constantly trying to be forthright in one respect and then you've sort of covered something you're dissembling up elsewhere. and dissembling about something else. Yes. Uh, I don't know whether I'm unusually honest. Uh, I There are other ways of characterizing uh, me that are less flattering. Uh, maybe I am indiscreet or I am self-destructive. <laughs> <laughs> that recklessness, self-destructive type. Of, I mean, or naive, you know, okay. or naive. Okay. I think there, there is an element of naivete, uh, especially in the current political environment, that I don't take seriously enough how perilous it has become to say things that are sometimes to me perfectly self-evident but uh, uh, are going to get me into terrible trouble. And so I'm, in some ways I'm insufficiently calculating. Okay. So yeah. you can call that bravery because I, don't, I, I do resent the idea that I'm supposed to be intimidated into suppressing what I really think about things. Uh, but uh, I am, I'm not careful enough, I suspect. The thing is that, unlike my mother, the diplomat, uh, carefulness not being my strong suit, there's no reason to play to it. Right, see, <laughs> so you're not good enough. You're not good I'm not at being careful. good at being careful, so I might as well just give it up. In Belfast, on the front of um, Paisley's old church, you referenced time is short, mm. there's the clock on the front of, uh, I think it's called Martyr's Memorial Church, and mm. underneath the clock in Paisley's church, it just says, time is short. <laughs> and I've, I've always thought that's the sort of preacher's time is short, you know, yes. this is the time we've got, make good use of it type of thing. I've always thought that was really powerful underneath that clock, really yeah, powerful. Great. Yeah, really powerful. Belfast. You seem to get attracted to um, war zones or places of conflict. Um, is that part of your lacking in care? Um, you know, going to Belfast was a kind of um, cheat in terms of being any sort of, you know, war correspondent or, or fiction writer drawn to danger. It wasn't really <clears throat> dangerous. And... Uh, in fact, that's whenever anyone tried to admire my bravery in that context, I had to set them but straight. Emotional because, conflict or cultural conflict. Yeah, I mean, that's where the real conflict was. Uh, in fact, I'm convinced that Irish nationalists invented identity politics. Oh. I think that's one of the reasons that I'm so averse to them, is that I g got sick of that kind of hypersensitivity and... Uh, uh, wallowing in victimization uh, while I was living a dozen years in Belfast and so I've had enough of it and it, it's just it, it's exactly the same temperament it's the same um, turning disadvantage to your advantage you know no one could be mistreated enough uh, yet by the time I got there in 1987 uh, the inequalities between the two communities were pretty negligible. And I always thought it came from America, that, identity, that obsession with identity politics, but that's probably my naivety. I haven't thought Well, I'm not through. necessarily saying that we can credit them entirely for exporting it, right. but they certainly got there first. Um, the whole package of, of self-pity and um, touchiness. Right, right, no, right. looking, looking, looking to be offended. They, they'd already refined being offended to a fine art uh, well before uh, tech, the, the expression identity politics was even coined. I, I was shocked last time I went there to see the way in which the conflict um, in Northern Ireland also sucks in other sorts of conflicts. So the way in which they appropriate Palestinian and Israeli... Yes. Uh, identity and you know so within the nationalist side all of that appropriation of 
of Palestinians um, and within the sort of uh, within the unionist side there. The, all of the, um, you know, Israeli flags. I, I know, like, isn't it weird? Madness? And it just has nothing to, nothing. nothing to do with them. <laughs> no, extraordinary, isn't and it? And they know nothing about it, really. No, no, no. And I'm, I'm afraid that the, the, the hard left as well, which is equally greedy about adopting anyone who seems to have been discriminated against, most of them don't know anything about it. You know, it's, it's, it's very skin-deep indignation. I, I mean, I, I'm on. I'm of the left, and but I was sort of. I do want to thank people like you, you particular, for sort of standing up against identity politics because I think, I think it's something that sort of, I think it's ruined my political tradition. The way in which socialism, which is what I, which is where I come from, is sort of, has sort of broken down into this sort of um, micro uh, slights about whatever sort of identity politics you subscribe to. It really maddens me. I think that's well observed, that a more traditional socialist perspective has been buried. Yeah, I think it has. You, you, um, you, you feel like an adopted Brit now. Yeah, I do, rather. Although, you know, that is, um, that's a claim that uh, I try to keep on the QT because Americans who go native in this country have a terrible reputation back home for being incredibly pretentious. Oh, I see. Um, I've tried to preserve the better part. Traitors. The better part of my American accent. (laughs) Um, Although I have to say that when uh, a previous uh, editor of mine uh, told, accused me of having become an honorary Brit... I knew I had gone native to an extent when I was complimented. I was complimented. I was touched. I, I suppose what I want to know, given the fact that um, you've you've started saying quite a lot of things about Brexit, um, and you say them with the sort and of... And see how much good it's done. No, but you say them with the confidence of someone who, who feels a part of us, so feels able to say things like that. So that's... I mean, you know, if someone from the outside perhaps wouldn't wade it in with such confidence. I don't think it's confidence. It's it's at this point it's fury. In any event, it's it is passion. Look, I've lived here over thirty years. I've been living under the yoke of the EU as well. You know? So I know what it's like. And people back in the States, especially on the left, think the the EU is uh is a utopia. And I don't. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. people, all of us who live here are, are more familiar with the irritating nitty gritty of the institution. And so, you know, I have I've certainly said up front that I have regard for both the the integrity of the arguments on both sides and up against a wall in a dark alley, I could put together an entirely persuasive a set of reasons to, for the UK to stay in the EU, right? Um, and as for whether it's in the U- UK's long-term economic interest, I think that's up for grabs. Uh, and it's entirely possible that it, that it is that, that leaving uh, w- w- would cost this country uh, a little money. But uh, I don't think that's ever been what it's about from the Leave side. And, you know, I do find it completely... What's it about from the Leave side? It's, it's, it is about political and economic independence. It's about having self-respect. It's about uh, having integrity and not being told what to do by a large institution that, uh, that, that's full of people who have contempt for you. And we have seen them on parade on an almost nightly basis during the last... Uh, two and a half years, but they won't go on Newsnight. But I mean, I mean, the, you don't get EU ministers go on Newsnight to be questioned or quizzed, do you? No, they don't show up. No, they don't show up because no. they're not there to be challenged or to be. Uh, they're just too distant from us. And that, and that idea that the power is somehow exists other, beyond, away from us. I think that's the dangerous thing about the EU, that it's just that you, this gap between ordinary people and power. Yeah. And, and I think it's just become... Well, it's absolutely ap- opposite of democracy. <clears throat> exactly where democracy right. fails is where that distance 
gets inserted and where it succeeds is where it's narrowest. And, exactly. uh, you know, in the olden days, the which I'm, by which I mean the 1990s, uh, the left was very big on local power. Yeah. And uh, th- in fact, that one of their um, one of their mantras was the right to s- national self determination. You remember that that expression that was touted out all the time. Um, and localism. I, just, localism. Yeah. And now you don't hear anything about. It. I find the the left embracing the idea of supranational, unaccountable bureaucracies completely bizarre. One of the things that's often said is that Brexit and Trump, they, it's often, they've often, they I often dislike, said in the same breath. I that's dis- not right, is it? I intensely dislike uh, their being thrown in together. Yeah. I don't think it's fair. Yeah. Um, for one thing, Trump is, is a person, not to mention an idiot. And and Brexit is a, is a, is a movement and, a, you know, it's a permanent decision. But this, it's not being motivated by the same thing. I mean, I was—I had just gone back to the states when um, the referendum was run because I didn't think, of course, that Leave was going to win, or I—I'd have stuck around for the circus. <laughs> <laughs> and it was just universally decried on all the mainstream television uh, channels and all the mainstream paper, papers as an act of um, not just economic self-destruction, that accusation came later, but initially it was just outright racism. You know, Ethno-nationalism. Ethno-nationalism and xenophobia, and it was all about immigration. You know, it's take, it took quite some time to peel back why people voted as they did, and, you know, I found it quite signal that when May's infamous deal first came up, uh, and that the polls were taken of uh, leave voters, it got practically no support. Even though uh, Theresa May had scored uh, an end to freedom of movement. Yeah, it's not about that. That's right. It's not about that because that wasn't good enough. That's not why they voted for it, not primarily. It was certainly a feeder. Uh, I have no doubt that a majority of leavers would prefer to reduce uh immigration to this country somewhat all right so we can at least start there i'll concede that but i don't i what i don't concede is that that's necessarily a racist position uh after all ironically the majority of uh immigration to this country right now is from outside the eu and most of the uh immigrants coming in from the continent are white so how can you call that racist it doesn't make any sense unless you're going to twist the word into something that it doesn't actually mean. So, you know, I just think leave voters were horribly miscalculated. And then when then and part of the problem was temporal. Right. Because you had the uh, the referendum over here in June and then by November there was Trump. And so that it. I, see. I find that especially uh, left-wing intellectuals are always trying to put together some theory of everything, I see, right? I see. They always <clears throat> they love to tie everything together. So, you know, we're we're going through the and also this helped um, create a kind of paranoid call to arms. I see. Yes, right. Yes, yes. We're being swamped by a bunch of right-wing so-called populist movements who are racist and um and uh potentially violent it's they're ignorant it's the mob uh it's all you know they're all white and um you know these people must be stopped everything's getting out of control whereas actually i just don't think trump and and brexit had anything to do with each other they had that thick thin thread of 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 immigration connecting them and that's about it so you're on our tv screens at the moment because you talk about this sort of thing and about politics but your day job as it were is the human condition i i sort of imagine um that that's what make someone a novelist is to explore the I mean uh, this yes. is this comes with a question mark at the end yes. this is just uh so and and yet a lot of your work seems to sort of do on that borderline between the human condition and sort of 
broader political themes. Is that correct? Well, I mean, here we are, two humans in our condition. Yes. <laughs> and we're talking about Brexit. So and, you're taking the piss at me for asking about the human condition because that's because <laughs> that's obviously such a grand thing to want no, to but do. The, but the point is that <clears throat> that that uh, characters and regular people uh, exist in a political moment, and furthermore, insofar as as politics means anything at all and has any importance, that importance derives from the fact that it has an impact on regular people. It's not, uh, it's not out out in the uh, ether or something. It, it, you know, I wrote about, for example, uh, the healthcare system in the United States, if you can call it a system, uh, because it has important implications for real people's lives. Um, it it connects with suffering and illness and death and money, right? I've written a lot about money. Yes. I'm really interested in money. Yeah. That tells you what's important. In, if you want to know what, if you want to know what someone really believes, don't ask them what they believe. Just look at their bank bank account and see where the money goes and where it doesn't go. That's what you if you if you want to tell me what people believe, I don't care what they say. No, what creed they say. It's just give me what their bank statement says, <laughs> and I'll tell you what they really believe. <laughs> Money is very important. It is very it's the, important. It's how you mean it. It's how you mean it. Well, and also um, it helps to define your self-interest, you know, what 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 you care about, what what you can afford to care about. And I think in general, uh, modern novelists have written too little about money. So this is interesting because I suppose what I was getting at with this that human condition question mark is that one has an idea about the novelist that they're, and maybe this is something to do with the sort of history of the novel or something like mm. that, is that interiority is their sort of f fundamental interest and in you sort of uh, in, in, in somehow getting more and more inner. But you're, but you're, you're, you quite rightly, philosophically to my mind, say, well, of course, but interiority is just embedded in public concerns. Exactly. And public concerns are actually as inner as... They are. And, and that's right. I, I agree mean, with I'm, you. I'm sitting there every morning reading the Daily Telegraph and the New York Times, in, and I'm in a state of suppressed fury, uh, especially recently. And that is my interior state. Yes. That is what I am feeling. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. So I think that the, the distinction between the exterior and the interior is a little artificial. It is artificial, isn't it? I think that's philosophically so. But I suppose that the um, the whole idea that the, the, the novel begins in sort of like angsty sort of questions that are, um, that, you know, might think about who am I going to marry or <laughs> um, uh, within a sort of like, I don't know, uh, a sort of culture of manners and so mm. forth. That's that's part of what I imagine this sort of novel is born from. Um, Quasi-religious reflection that's perhaps disconnected from from the world. And, and yours is yours is sort of yours is not like that. Yours is as say money, which is I, I agree. That's the but money's deeply emotional, and uh, you know it's it's not. It's not just emotional in relation to, you know, I, I want some. <laughs> you want to get a reaction. You take, the mo take money away from people who had it. And that's one of the things I'm looking at in uh, my most recent novel, which is The Mandibles. Yes, that's people... about when the United States becomes... It's a sort of, sort of quasi-Brexity type of situation. I mean, as much as uh, the... That the United States um, it, it goes into its own currency, doesn't it? And uh, has well, a, it already has its own has currency. its own currency, <laughs> and this currency is then becomes um, disconnected from from world currency, and everybody gets poorer. Well, um, even more simply, uh, the 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 dollar is no longer the international reserve currency, and therefore it starts dropping in value. And the president renounces the national debt. Okay, right. yeah. so the the U.S. is not going to pay all that money back, and that has a lot of economic consequences. It's set in in twenty twenty nine to the Chinese. Is that who it's owned to? Actually, in my book, by the time by twenty twenty nine, the Chinese have had the intelligence to divest themselves of most all but short term American debt. So no. Who's it owed? Who's it owed to? Other Americans. 
And the truth is that that Americans still hold the majority of American debt. So that if you uh, if if this were ever to happen, and by the way, after I wrote that book, Trump came along and started saying, you know, maybe we should cancel the debt. (laughs) He has actually mooted this idea. but you, you, it would, it would have a, you know, terrible consequences for the uh, American economy. So I was looking at the implosion of the U.S. economy from the perspective of one family, four different uh, generations, and it's a family that has a fairly large fortune, but it's stuck in the, with the ninety-eight-year-old patriarch. So. It's a family that has expectations of wealth, but most of them have have had no real wealth that they that they can get their mitts on. And so, and then, you... and then that fortune disappears. And then, when the when when the money disappears, then you have that conflict over scarce resources, yes. which is the, the which is which which seems to me to go straight to Lionel Shriver territory. Yes, conflict over scarce resources amongst people who, most of whom were used to their comforts, shall we say. I see. So, I mean, I think one of the difficulties in wresting real drama from the middle classes is that, you know, they're not imperiled enough. And so novelists like me are all always... uh, looking for opportunities to take their comforts away, and then we can get real. Well, and that was before, actually, it started to become real, like now. Yeah. I mean, that's the whole point about Brexit, it seems to me, is that middle classes are terrified that their comforts will be taken away. I've never been quite persuaded by that argument. That we're going to get poorer, and that the people are going to get poorer are probably those... It is possible that the UK will be, at least um, in the short term, a little poorer... But I don't believe that what's motivating Brexit is economic exasperation. After all, I don't think that the people who voted for Brexit have coherently worked out a connection between membership of the EU and their own gradual impoverishment. You could more intelligently blame it on globalization, and the EU is not really... Uh, one of the culprits in global globalization. It's not that we're sending all of our jobs to the continent. They've gone no. to you know China and Vietnam. So I I, I do don't think that. But do you see it as a battle between the haves and the have-nots on some level? I mean, within the within this country, there's a split between. I mean, if you look to there's that, definitely a split. And I went to that um, rally on Friday, uh, the Leave Means Leave rally on the day that we were supposed to leave the EU and uh it did there did seem to be some palpable class divide going on although that said you know these were the diehards and a lot of them had traveled some distance to 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 be there um and there, was there are, there are was... a lot of just regular middle englanders who you know make their own marmalade who were would not join such a such a, a crowd, but at the same time did vote to leave the EU. Uh, they're not all skint. Uh, I think they've, an economic analysis of people who voted leave is, it's more or less the, you know, the just about managing uh, class. It, but it doesn't mean that you're talking about people who are dirt poor. Um, and there's substantial support uh, for for leave uh, among just the r- rural residents who may be doing fine but don't identify with the London elite, you know the, and there there is definitely a divide here, and I don't think it's as neat as the working class versus the the upper class. It is something subtler than that. It's definitely to do with being uh, resident in cities, and it has to do with being in power in a very broad sense, okay? That's what the elite means. And that's why I've said from the very beginning that we would not really leave the EU, right? Because 
people in power, in, and again, in that very broad way, people in power don't want to. And the very definition of people in power is the people who decide what happens. <laughs> so it, it just doesn't happen that people in power don't want something to happen and it happens. It doesn't happen because that's what power is. And that's what we're watching uh, happen in, in Parliament right now. They're going through throes to seem to be democratic, but they aren't. And at the end of the day, they don't really care about seeming to be democratic. They care about not leaving the EU. Yeah. The, the, so they twist and turn to find any way out of it, but the fact that it's 52% of the people who voted voted to leave the oh, EU. Oh, that's, uh, that's what the whole second referendum thing is about. It's about putting a fig leaf of democracy over autocracy, over, over a, a summary judgment by our betters who, who are... Who, who know what the national interest is. You, you're hearing that expression a lot. Um, who in the national interest have decided that we need to do something a little different. I mean, the soft Brexit is the same thing as not leaving. And we all know that. Yes. So, yes. so this is, and then you have a referendum after you failed to leave in any meaningful sense. And the referendum will be rigged. You know, nobody's talking about putting a truly leave option on the ballot. So we put Mail's crap, May, May, Theresa May's crappy deal on it. Um, that's the closest we're going to get to leave. And that still ends up, you know, a permanent customs union. It's a nightmare. Um, and, and then you may vote to completely leave. Uh, if but, but they're not that, that going to put no, be on the, that no, won't ever be on the ballot. No deal's not going to be on the ballot. No, no. So you basically rerun the referendum with leave missing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Yeah. But you know you've gone through the democratic process. You know yeah, yeah. you've put the democratic imprimatur on the decision not to leave, in 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 a in a real way to remain fundamentally tied to the EU. If you, if, uh, I don't know if you saw the breakdown of those who'd signed the petition to revoke uh, Article 50. You know, this is a petition that's... Uh, that, I haven't that, seen the breakdown. So there's a breakdown of it by constituency. Um, and the, the constituencies that have voted uh, the highest percentage to revoke, uh, you look at places, they're places like Cambridge, they're places like, uh, they're places like Islington, they're places like uh, Bristol. They're, they're, they're places that... And if you look at the places that have leased... There are places like Redcon, there are places mm -hmm. like uh, Sunderland. And, just a, and it's just, if you look at the list of these places, you go, oh, my word, you can just see the power imbalance mm -hmm. between these two places. And it's shocking. Yeah. And, and part of my leaviness is just, I, I will like stick up for... like that expression, leaviness. Well, I will stick up for those people on that yeah. other list. That's, that's a sort of visceral thing. I've sort of dug in on that now. Um, and, uh, I mean, I suppose that's part of why the fact that this conflict is feels so intractable because we've we've all dug in on it, haven't we? Well, it's revealed something about the nature of the country. Okay. Actually, I can... Uh, this is important because... It is important. The, the divide that it has, has, has opened up was there to begin with, you know, and that, that there was a sense of alienation from the elites in finance, in government, in education, it somehow, it's, it's, hard to, it's, it's hard to quite get the glom together as to what, what who constitute this, this class of people. It, it isn't just to do with money. It's something else. But it's not like the old class divide in this country. It is isn't. It? The old class divide was different. There was a sort of, uh, there was a, I don't know, I mean, it was patronising, there was a noblesse oblige, but there was all sorts of connections that seemed to have gone, that old, that old mm -hmm. class connection. And we're left with a very, I mean, I know you're suspicious of, we've just talked about how you're suspicious of these big narratives to explain things. But nonetheless, something really has changed here that, that we, we're having to face about ourselves. And the whole idea that we're that, we're that sort of class-based society, of course, as rich and poor and so forth, but we're not class-based in the same way we were before. The, the, these classes have, have, have redefined themselves, recast yes. themselves. Yes. Money's there. Money and power's there. Common denominator, not power, sort of posh power toffs more than dead holding their roses. Power more than money. Power more than money. So yeah. that's why the university towns are so important in this. Yes. 
in some ways, what most interests me at this point is what the consequences are, and I don't see any. That's what really makes me tear my hair. I mean, you know, you have people uh, in Vox Pops vowing, the, you know, if, the, if Brexit is betrayed, they're never going to vote again. Well, you know what? The urban elite we were just talking about, they're happy as Larry for these people never to vote again. I mean, that's just music to their ears. Things will only get better. They'll only get more power. I mean, what is a Brexiteer to do, really? There's no party out there. There's Nigel, Nigel Farage's tiny little Brexit party. But, you know, that's not going to be mobilized sufficiently in, in by the next election. And what's that? Voting for that is just going to split the conservative vote and get Corbyn in power. And if you don't want Corbyn in power, you are screwed. There is nobody to vote for. And so who cares? And by the way, Remainers have worked this out behind closed doors a long time ago. They realized it doesn't matter that they can just refuse to leave the EU however they box it up, you know, whatever little little uh, jingle bells they put it on it to make it seem like something else. And, and they're not going to pay a price for it. There will be no price to pay because there's nothing for the disgruntled to do. And this is not... Uh, that anger's got to go somewhere. Where? This yeah, is where not a go? very violent country. It doesn't have a tradition of revolution in the same sense that... Uh, that, but, that it'll, num- it'll go, but if it doesn't go into revolution, I agree with you, that there'll be forms of resentment that it who will cares? lay down. Okay. No, no, who cares politically? Exactly. Who but cares? I'm, okay, so no, that's who true. Cares? Who cares? Yeah. Who cares about their resentment? Who cares about their bitterness? Who cares about their disaffection? Who cares about their alienation? Who cares about... the same people will still be in power. Yeah. Who cares? Well, you should care. I mean, you care. I because, care. Because, I mean, what you care, but also you must care also in terms of your attention to these sorts of things as a novelist. That seems to me absolutely it's very interesting to your mill. To me. Yeah, it Chris is. to your mill. Yeah, and I could definitely see a novel coming out of this eventually, though not immediately, because... Because that, would, cause I know it, it doesn't go anywhere, a little but, but that resentment does go somewhere. I mean, it might not go anywhere and reshape, mm-hmm. but it reshapes us, even if it doesn't reshape the country. It re- I feel that anger, the frustration about being powerless, that will reshape uh, those of us who feel angry about it. Well, we'll see what the political consequences are in the medium term. I think in the short term, the worst possible consequence, from my perspective, it would, would be a Corbyn government. Uh, and that, I think that is a real danger. I think that's a huge danger. So would you prefer would you prefer to to leave properly and have a Corbyn government or not to leave and, uh, I want, and not have a Corbyn government? I want I want my pie and ice cream. Of course, <laughs> right? I <laughs> I want to get out of the EU and I and I don't want a Corbyn government. Okay. So yeah. <laughs> so no, I don't accept false choices. <laughs> what are you writing at the moment? Can you tell us about that? I just uh, finished a new novel, and it's in the editorial stage. Do we know what it's called? Are we allowed it's to called say? The Motion of the Body Through Space. Okay. And it's about the cult of exercise. Oh, my word. Which you are an exerciser. You run all the time, don't you? I, a lot. I never, I never know how to answer that question anymore. I had to stop running per se because of arthritis in my knees. Okay. From overuse, I was informed. Okay, from running too much. Running, tennis, and you name it, okay. I have worn them out. I still do this run, high knees running in place interval training, which is extremely tedious. Um, so I, I run after a fashion, and I still play tennis. The, um, the other thing, I guess, about the intersection between what we earlier talked about is about the public and interiority mm-hmm. You write quite a lot about the intersection between the body as well as money, but the body and interior. That's another. That's very well observed, actually, because um, I think one of the threads of interest, my personal interests, running through my books is the relationship between mind and body. Yeah. And it's incredibly complicated. So I've written about obesity. Yeah. I've written about. I read that. I found it really difficult. 
I find I find Big Brother really difficult. I've been big myself, and I found it. Uh. I found it. I found it a really difficult read. Really difficult. I didn't like it. I mean, not I didn't. You know, it, it, the craft was, but the book. But I found it really did much more than Kevin, which everybody talks about. Right about how painful that is. Yeah, yeah. I'm not a mom. I guess that's not the. Although that that is a novel that I I really tried to make sympathetic with the whole, you know. The fat side of the obesity yeah, equation. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, not. No. It's certainly not a, a book that sits uh, in prim judgment. No, no, definitely not. Like, no. How dare you have another biscuit? Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Um, and because you know, I've had a, a brother who became morbidly obese, and and I, it was excruciatingly painful, and partly because of the way I saw other people treating him, it was horrible. So and I so uh and and I you know I loved him and he was a he was a genius but he had, at the end of the at the end of his life he was a very fat genius and that seemed to change everything about the way people regarded him people I mean I I'm always get told about these podcasts that I'm too genial okay so I'm going to try and say something that's not genial Okay. You're going to be mean but, to me? No, I'm not going to be mean to you. <laughs> it's like, well, um, one of the things that uh, I, I expected about you, the, you're not a pleaser, which you're definitely not a pleaser, and, and that's what the attraction... I, I, on on, the, on very, the other hand, I like people to like me. Okay, but, but I was... Which gonna, makes me a normal human being. Exactly, it does. But what I was going to say is that um, for all of that sort of reputation for not being a pleaser, if you put it that way, mm-hmm. I think you have an incredibly sympathetic eye to human weakness. And I think it comes out in in stuff about the body as well. I am hugely sympathetic with weakness and highly uh, suspicious of virtue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? And that's where, I mean, you wanted to talk about my beliefs and feelings in the context of my life. Growing up in that self-righteous religious family, uh... I don't think I've ever heard my my father say he was wrong about something. Okay? So I am very suspicious of virtue, of people who think they're always right um, and who are always trying to impose their version of goodness on other people. You have a well-developed sense of original sin. In Indeed. <laughs> I'm very attached to mine. <laughs> Me too. Lionel Schreiber, thank you very much. It's been a joy to talk to you. Thank you. <laughs> it's it's been fun. Yeah, it's been fun. Thank you for listening to this episode of Confessions with me, Giles Fraser. If you're enjoying the podcast, please do rate and review it. And do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be joined by another guest next week for another episode of Soul Bearing, and I do hope you'll tune in then. And do check out the website, unheard.com.